0: Okay, here's a joke that U.S. servicemen in Iraq just love. This brings down the house, according to Tom Irwin, a comedian who just spent over a month entertaining troops in the Sunni Triangle and Fallujah in Mosul, near the border with Iran, all over the place. He came into the studio and told me the joke.
1: Black Hawk helicopters, I I love them. I love the pilots. We've gotten to know many of the Black Hawk helicopter pilots, and I love Black Hawk helicopters. I do know a group of people who hate them, and those would be Iraqi sheep farmers.
0: And that joke would kill?
1: Yeah. No, it's very, yeah, it's very strong because that's how everybody gets around. You know, because you fly very low, so you can see the people. You can see them. So it has to do with, and you watch all the animals scatter. So it's kind of, okay, Babu, okay, last one in the pen, okay, and then... Ah, oh, medicade, you know, just like it's just this—I don't know. I'm sorry, I can't keep describing. It's so hard to leave that out there because it's just like I am just so conditioned to have it have a different reaction. I'm sorry. This is just like I'm sitting in the studio, just like oh my god, this is the greatest bad reaction I've ever heard. <laughs>
0: Those of us here in the United States may think we have some idea of what is going on among the American forces in Iraq, but really, we don't know their day-to-day lives, we don't know their habits, we don't know what annoys them most, we do not even understand their jokes. As Tom Irwin says,
1: You have to be in Iraq, sort of.
0: And so today on our radio program, an attempt to bridge the gap between the 140,000 Americans stationed in Iraq and the 290 million of us back home. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International I'm Eric Glass. Today on our show, trying to find cigarettes in Fallujah, what U.S. training tells you you should do if you hit a roadside bomb versus what you should actually do if you want to live, and what insurgents play over loudspeakers that freaks out Americans, and what Americans play to freak out Iraqis. We have two stories in our show today. Act one, we spend some time with some National Guardsmen a few miles from Baghdad. Act two, our own Jack Hit talks about what the Battle of Fallujah was really like the Marine lieutenant who commanded a platoon in Charlie Company, a lieutenant who also happens to be his nephew. Stay with us. (music) Equine, when weekend warriors work weekdays. Joe Betts signed up for the National Guard when he was 22. A friend was in the Guard. He had brothers in the Guard. He liked the military. At 42, he and his unit got called to service in Iraq. Joe had been working as an assistant minister in a Baptist church, and just two months before he got caught up, he started his own church, which was progressing just fine.
2: The The attendance was good. Uh, we had about 30 plus people there uh, each Sunday evening at 3, and I, I think it was going along pretty good.
3: Oh, Hallelujah! Hallelujah!
2: Uh, we know that My unit 239 has been called up to active duty. Pray my strength in the Lord. I'm going through some hard times at this point in my life. It's a a trying time. I need your prayers. I need your prayers. And I also would like to admonish the ones that have been attending services to continue to come. Amen. Amen. Yes, sir. Continue to come. Don't, don't stop. Yeah. No matter what trials and tribulations come, he is telling us to press on. Yes, sir.
0: Hey, Joe, when you signed up for the Guard, did you ever think that you would be deployed? Uh, yes. You did? Uh, I did, but
2: for me to go, they had to re-enlist me because my enlistment was actually about up uh my 20 years would have been over with my enlistment period actually was over before we were, we were sent and so they involuntarily wow. gave me another year
0: and and if they had asked you uh whether or not you wanted to do that would you have said that you wanted to do it or that you wouldn't have wanted to do it
2: at the time I wouldn't have done it yeah uh, i've had twenty years, and I feel like twenty years is enough to to give to your country. I feel like i've done my duties
4: mm-hmm.
2: i don't I don't feel like I owe anybody anything and no i don't I don't think I would have went if they'd have gave me that choice mm-hmm.
0: Joe is one of the people in this new documentary series that's airing on a cable channel that you probably don't catch too often, the Discovery Times Channel. Two brothers from Arkansas, Brent and Craig Renault, decided to follow one group of Arkansas National Guardsmen and their families from the announcement of their deployment to the day that the town holds a big rally to send them off and into Kuwait and Iraq. Three episodes have aired already. The brothers are still out there filming. The unit is still there in Iraq. And because these guys have gotten to know these men and their families so well, living with him for months now. The brothers have witnessed and filmed all kinds of things that have never been documented anywhere else. Forty percent of the soldiers in Iraq are reservists, either from the Army Reserve or from the National Guard. And what this means for Arkansas is the largest call-up of reservists since the Korean War, 2,800 soldiers. Craig and Brent followed the 57 guardsmen from the town of Clarksville, Arkansas. Here's Craig. Clarksville
5: is a town of 7,000 people, One of the reasons we chose Clarksville is is the majority of the National Guard that's in Iraq right now comes from small rural towns like Clarksville. Um, You know, a lot of people that join the National Guard there do it for an extra paycheck.
4: What did most of these guys think they were signing up for? When they initially signed up, I mean, like anybody else who joins the National Guard, they think they're signing up for one week in a month and two weeks a year. Um, After 9/11, obviously, that changed everything. but no one thought they were signing up for a deployment. They were signing up to to hang out with their buddies one weekend a month, um, get to shoot guns and drive trucks around, uh, but definitely not go fight in a war. And in the early episodes of Off the War, you, you see um, how taken aback they are.
6: We are uh, out in the middle of the desert in Kuwait, eating a meal that came out of a brown plastic sack on uh, probably the... Uh, most expensive camping trip America has ever seen. This is my response to the National Guards. What
7: happened to one week in a month, two weeks a year?
0: This is Matt Hurtline and his friend Tommy. Matt signed up for the Guard because he wanted free college and extra money on the weekends, and because Tommy made it sound like it would be a good time.
6: The man I am today is because of that right there. <laughs> He is the one that I said, yeah, man, let's join the National, oh, get drunk on the weekends and go to drills and we can have all kinds of fun in college, partying, yeah, yeah. I see how when, much fun
8: you're having in college.
6: When's the last, uh, last time you signed up for registration? <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, Matt Hurtline and, and Tommy Earp, the 19-year-olds who joined, um, coming out of high school, they've talked about there's not a whole lot of opportunities for them. Uh, Matt even made the comment that, you know, if I wasn't here with all of my buddies in Iraq, I don't know what else I'd be doing because, one, everybody's in the National Guard that I know, and so they're here. And if I was back home, there's not a lot of opportunity for us. When we were at a a party, their last party that they went to just before they left, all of their friends were joking about how they couldn't wait for their friends to leave
0: because um, now there would be more jobs available that they could get once they were in Iraq. At the very beginning of the documentary, before they're sent out, Matt and Tommy are the only ones who actually seem to kind of look forward to going to Iraq. They're younger than the other guardsmen, didn't have responsibilities at home, and didn't know much about what was going on in the war. Sitting on the couch in Matt's house with some family, they talked about it.
6: It's an opportunity to me, you know. We can go over there and get the job done, and I think it'll be fun. I'll try to make the most of it. I I'll think, I'll think I'll have fun. Friends are going. I got family going. It'll be pretty fun. My mom's not too happy about it. <laughs> She's... Yeah. Every time she even starts talking about it, she starts bawling, man. He's 19 years old. He just turned 19. We know what we're doing. It's not like we're going over there and we're just going to be sandbags getting shot at. I mean, we know what we're doing. We know how to control ourselves. Those suicide bombers and stuff, I mean, they're willing to kill themselves and they don't care who they kill. If I got to shoot somebody, I'm going to shoot them. I mean, I don't want to. It's not like I just want to go over there just to shoot people. But, I mean, if I have to shoot somebody, I'm, I'm going to do it. I just don't know if he realizes how dangerous it's going to be.
0: The Renault brothers helped arrange for me to talk with Matt Hurtline from Camp Cook, where he and his unit are stationed, in Taji, just a few miles north of Baghdad. When you see that early footage of yourself saying, like, oh, it's going to be kind of fun and it'll be an adventure, do you feel like, man, you don't even know what you're in for?
6: (laughs) Oh, yeah. It doesn't even seem like me saying it anymore. Just, you know, have been here for nine months. And then, you know, you watch that that scene from that episode and it, it doesn't even, I don't know. It's like I'm not even watching
0: myself. In the documentary, after the Arkansas Guardsmen are caught up, but before they're shipped to Iraq, they're sent to training for six months at Fort Hood in Texas and Fort Polk in Louisiana. And seeing the footage of what they're like in training, the reality hits you, I think, of what it means that 40% of our forces in Iraq are reservists. Most of these are middle-aged guys who never thought that they would be deployed. In fact, some of them had served in the Army and then switched to the Guard specifically so they could get a pension without being deployed overseas. And so you notice something right away about their physical condition.
4: I think like most people in America, a lot of these guys were out of
0: shape. Filmmaker Brent Renault.
4: Um, remember, they were only doing one weekend a month, two weeks a year. They weren't expected to be in war shape, in combat shape. And like the rest of America, a lot of them were not in that shape.
9: Here, get a shot of my big belly. There you go. That, that'll That'll be gone about the time I get home. Come on,
0: blow the whistle. Imagine being sent back to junior high school gym class as an adult, and you get the picture of what's happening here. A bunch of homeowners and parents in gym shorts and t-shirts jumping up and down in a row, most of them with these looks on their faces like they cannot believe this is happening to them. One soldier asks if he can smoke during calisthenics. When they do sit-ups, another guy barely picks his shoulders up off the ground.
3: Oh, shit.
0: oh shit. Told to run in a circle, one soldier takes off in the wrong direction completely.
1: Clockwise. 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 Clockwise!
0: And when they're put into formation in order to march, this is what happens.
2: Mark time, march.
0: Half of them just look around, one guy scratches his jock. It's momentary chaos and then they start over.
2: Lock and load! You're
0: Even on the shooting range, there's a bad news bears quality to these early scenes.
4: I fired three rounds. Three rounds. How many holes do you see?
0: <laughs> this is going to be a lot different than just hunting back home. Sergeant Joe Betts, uh, the minister who was re-enlisted against his will, who was in his 40s, remember, as he went through all this training, says he was overweight by official Army standards but was still able to do all the push-ups and sit-ups and running required by the Army. In the film, show um, early on you say this, that a lot of the guys uh, weren't taking the training seriously enough. Right. What did you see that made you say that? Like, what was happening?
2: The laughter. When we would train, you would see people just sitting around saying... Oh man, it's not gonna. this not gonna happen over there. This is not what's
0: gonna happen.
8: Welcome to Fort Hood. This up is pretty simple from here on out.
0: It's night. Dozens of Arkansas Guardsmen in formation at attention, staring forward. They've just arrived at this base in Texas.
8: All you have to do is be where you are supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, and everything else is a cakewalk. Huh? Good. All right. That's all I got. Oh, and turn them stupid cell phones off when you're standing in formation. Got it? Thank you.
4: That's Brian Mason. He was brought in from a different unit to bring leadership to, this, to the engineer unit.
0: Again, filmmaker Craig Renault.
4: And he, when he did notice uh, maybe some be- people being a little more lackadaisical than they could, um, it started, I think the, the responsibility started weighing on him, that it's that he's got to get these guys home alive. He had been in Desert Storm. Um, he didn't want anyone to die on his watch. He says a lot. You see him saying speeches, you know, you guys got to get
0: your game face on. You got to get your game face on.
8: Company, me a tent. Huh!
0: This is in their barracks. Guys on benches, lockers, everywhere. They stand in a tired sort of way. One guy stands on his bed.
8: I want to thank each and every one of you for embarrassing the s*** out of me with this sad display of disrespect. Get down off those bunks. Stand at ease. A colonel, lieutenant colonel, just walked into this company, walked past 20, 30 people probably. Not one of you called the room to attention. Not one of you said, sir. Who the hell do you people think you are? Hell, half of you don't even salute me when I'm outside. Or the other platoon leaders. Or the company commander.
0: Who they are, of course, is grown men, mostly. Not career military. Not young recruits. And it's strange to watch them get chewed out like teenagers. They stare ahead, faces blank. You want to make
8: life hard for yourself? Keep that up! First Sergeant, they're all yours. Take care of them.
0: 39th Brigade went through three weeks of combat training at Fort Polk, Louisiana, part of a joint readiness program. This is the Army's attempt to simulate as best as it could what operations would be like in Iraq. Again, filmmaker Craig Renault, And the idea was um, they brought in
5: a, a lot of Iraqis, mostly Kurdish Iraqis who, who live in the United States, um, to do a lot of role-playing. And they would speak only in Arabic to the soldiers, and they would have to undergo... You know things like um, you would do in a peace and stability operation. They did one training exercise where they had to go on a convoy through a town, and as they came into the town, there was a protest of Iraqis, um, and they had to to come in and, and ask the Iraqis if they could pass their convoy through. And what it turned out is that the Iraqis were actually protesting um, a rise in the meat prices, but the soldiers assumed that they were protesting the American presence. And... Anyway, the way they handled it escalated the situation, and the commander ended up getting killed. And...
2: Take that tree right there. Lindsay, stay where you're at. Lindsay, stay where you're at. All your weapons to your right.
0: An industrial-sized smoke machine. Who knew the Army owns an industrial-sized smoke machine? Bill is white smoke. People scatter everywhere. Civilians in headscarves wail over their fake dead. Officers and trainers stroll through the melee, observing and saying things like, well, I guess that'll teach them not to leave their vehicles unintended.
8: Incoming!
6: I wish we could have had a little more training, to be honest.
0: Again, 19-year-old Matt Hurtlein talking with me from outside Baghdad. I don't think we got enough. How well prepared were you for what you're doing now every day
6: oh uh, actually we weren't uh we weren't really prepared at all I mean we were for we were prepared for like going up and down the road and things like that but you know the kinds of missions that that we've been doing over here we, you know that's that's not the kind of thing that uh we train for
9: it's not even close they, they don't compare at all. The people that trained us, you got to understand, even if they had been over here, it was for Desert Storm, right. which was a completely different war than what we're fighting here. Sergeant
0: David Short is a policeman in civilian life. In Iraq, he commands a combat unit in the Arkansas National Guard. He's another person in the film who spoke with me from Taji, outside Baghdad.
9: The, the people that did the training actually did the best that they, they knew to do. They were under the impression that the war was over, and that we would basically be doing security and stability operations where we were just in the rebuilding phase of the country because they figured the major uh, combat was over. And when we got here, that's not really what happened. When We, we immediately started uh, combat patrols. Uh, in fact, the second day that I was here, uh, we were given a photocopy of a piece of a map and directions to a gate and told to go out and uh, start patrolling, looking for insurgents.
0: Sergeant Short and Matt Hurtline both told me that they wished that they'd had more regular combat training, how to patrol, how to fire weapons from different positions, how to capture and detain people. Part of the problem is just a coincidence in timing. The 39th Battalion arrived in country in April 2004. Here's Brent Renault.
5: And if you remember, April of last year is when the security situation really started to deteriorate in Iraq. Yeah. That's
0: when Fallujah really started to take place. and That's, when they, that's the month that they, uh, that they captured those private contractors and killed them and hung them from that bridge. That's when it really all changed.
4: Exactly. That, that happened the day before we, we pulled out of Kuwait to convoy into Iraq. They started doing things like going on patrols, looking for roadside bombs, guarding prisoners, these sort of things that they weren't trained for because nobody envisioned that they would
0: actually be doing them in Iraq. One simple but important piece of training that they lacked what to do if their vehicles rolled across an IED, an improvised explosive device. Back before they arrived in Iraq, IED explosions were much less common than they are these days. Now they're so frequent that Sergeant Short's unit has been blown up two dozen times by IEDs. Three of those times, Sergeant Short himself was in the convoy.
9: And the the thing that a lot of people, that I didn't know until I'd actually been in one and got hit, is your radio is no good to you for about 10 seconds. So you may be trying to talk to somebody but the the explosion creates blast waves that interfere with the radio waves and your communication equipment is no good for approximately 10 to 15 seconds so it's imperative that everybody pay attention to what everybody else is doing if you hear the explosion you need to be looking to make sure everybody that's supposed to be with you is with you so if for any reason you need to turn around and go back and pick somebody up or or recover their vehicle you can but you know these are things we learned ourselves
0: And so you didn't actually do drills on what to do if you're in a vehicle in a convoy and an IED goes off. That's not something you practiced for. No,
9: we we just learned the hard way on those. The first time we had an actual uh, improvised explosive device go off, it disabled the truck. They were ambushed. Uh, One of the guys was killed. They did train us. They did give us the standard procedure of what they wanted us to do. We followed those procedures, and basically what happened is a truck got left by itself with no combat support, because they did what they were trained to do, push forward 300 meters and then assess the situation. Well, they had a truck that was disabled and they pushed out 300 meters and left it there. And so those guys are in a a firefight, you know, fighting for their lives. And then the guys say, oh, we gotta go back and get them. And then we got back and the leaders all sat together and said, you know, we did what we were trained to do, but it doesn't work. And
0: and how could they have trained you to prepare for those?
9: Well, to to be honest, really, you know, in their defense, it would be very difficult for them to train us for something that they had no personal experience with.
0: By the time they finally do go to Iraq, the guys have lost weight. In-country, they lose even more, wearing 60-pound vests all day in a place that gets up to 120 degrees. And some of the most disturbing moments in the film have to do with the equipment that they take with them, vehicles that the Arkansas National Guard has had for years, decades.
4: These five-ton dump trucks, the youngest one we have is 1956. The newest one we have is 1964.
0: Only four of the unit's 42 vehicles were properly armored.
5: Again, filmmaker Craig Renault. And um, brigade-wide, I think this was pretty representative in terms of the armor situation that they had. The the vehicle that I convoyed in, into Iraq, I was in the uh, back of a vehicle that had a pine box around it with sandbags in the middle of it, and they said that they hoped that they might slow the bullets down. They didn't have any any um, hopes that it would actually stop a bullet, but it might actually slow it down and, and reduce the damage that it would do to you. So it, it certainly wasn't comforting to be convoying into Iraq in those type of vehicles. We were promised up armor kits. We didn't get them. And so we're going to go ahead and try to
0: fabricate something.
8: Hey, sir. You think we could use some of this stuff? Yeah, let's take that with us.
0: What follows next is soldiers in the most powerful army in the history of man, scrounging in scrap heaps for sheets of iron to weld onto the doors and floorboards of their own vehicles.
6: We're trying to use as much of the metal as we can of the steel, but... We only have a limited supply of it, so you know we have to resort to these old bulletproof vests. And uh, honestly, I don't feel too comfortable with doing that. But we got to do what we got to do, man. We got to use what we can.
0: That's Matt Hurtline attaching the old armored vest to his truck door for protection. When I asked him about this moment in the documentary, he told me
6: it was uh, it was like a scene out of the A Team. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Uh, I think we're just on the bottom of the list. Priority goes to, you know, the regular army and the the Marine Corps and just whoever else. We just kinda get whatever's left over.
0: It takes three months for the three thousand person brigade to get armor on all the vehicles that need it. They still have some unarmored vehicles, but those usually don't leave the base. Other reservists, who've been there less time, are not as far along in getting the armor that they need. And the Army Times reported last month that it'll be June for all the trucks and Humvees in Iraq all have proper armor. A third still lack it. 11,000 vehicles. Again, here's Sergeant Joe Betts, the 42-year-old minister that we started our story with.
2: We wasn't armored the way we should have been armored going into Iraq.
0: And, and did that make everybody mad? Were you mad? Of course
2: that made people mad.
0: Now, over a half year after all that, um, in December, uh, National Guardsmen from Tennessee brought up this exact problem with Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld in this town meeting they held over there. Exactly.
2: And, and I did see that.
0: Now, now, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld said that they're getting at the armored uh, vehicles as quickly as they can. And he said, you know, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you want. What, what do you think of that? Well, actually, that, that
2: is true. You do go to war with the army you have. But prior to us going to war, they knew we was going. They had already talked about us going, so why didn't they do something about the the up armament that we needed prior to going to war?
0: but they didn't anticipate that there were going to be these insurgents at this level you know they didn't they didn't necessarily know that there was going to be a need for it, oh yeah,
2: anytime you go to war, you need armor, yeah, so that's not something that that even even in World War two, they they knew they needed armor. I mean, you don't go to war thinking that you're gonna go out there with no armor on and you're not gonna get hurt. So to me, for them to just send us over there and say that you don't need this gear, you don't need this up armor on your vehicles is saying that I don't care about the soldiers. That's what it says
0: to me. The day they actually drive from Kuwait into Iraq, things change for the Arkansas Brigade in a number of ways. Today's the
8: day. This is our first interaction with the Iraqis. Be polite, be professional, and be prepared to kill. We're in transition phase right now. We go from the training, the game, to the Super Bowl, to the war.
0: This is Lieutenant Brian Mason, who you heard earlier yelling at the guys. Now they're sitting on bunks, listening, attentive, worried-looking.
8: So you guys need to put on your game face right here and right now. These Iraqis, they know who we are. They know your National Guardsmen. Yeah, they're going to target you. Because they think you're just a bunch of lazy, fat National Guardsmen who don't know how to do their job.
0: Welcome to Baghdad. Keep your eyes open. This is Joe, the minister, in the convoy into Iraq. I've
2: been here for about 10 minutes and I already know I hate Baghdad. I hate the country, I don't want to be here. Y'all hear that? All right. Yeah. Just got a mortar round fired. Right. A mortar round was just fired. Welcome home, guys. Camp Cook. One day down, 364 days ago.
0: <laughs> They'll make a craig right now.
5: Well, the very first day that this brigade arrived to the base, there was an Arkansas National Guard soldier killed within the first 10 hours. A mortar came in. I would say as a whole, that's where you really saw people realize that this is for real.
9: Of course, my unit, unfortunately, took the first National Guard casualty from the the entire brigade.
0: Again, Sergeant David Short, who commands a combat unit, talking to me from Iraq.
9: And we had been here one day. We got hit with a rocket attack, and it killed Sergeant Labity and it seriously wounded uh, uh, Sergeant Leisure. The thing about,
5: you know, a brigade like this... With the Arkansas National Guard, all the guys that we were following knew that first soldier that was killed, and the minute he was killed, everybody's demeanor changed and everybody knew this was for real. I don't know, at least in the unit we were with, it seemed like a lot of guys weren't taking it that seriously until that happened. Two days later, another soldier was killed. I happened to be um, at the motor pool when they brought that vehicle back in. I saw the medic get out completely covered in blood. Right, he got killed in a in, in a, an ambush of a Humvee. Exactly, in an ambush.
9: The windshield shattered when the IED went off. This was the last place that Sergeant Del Greco was.
0: This is Sergeant Short in footage from the movie, standing in front of the shot-up vehicle with his men. Matt and Tommy are there, looking stunned, vulnerable.
9: I hope it gets real for you guys, I really do. Because this is very difficult for me. Because I love every one of these guys, and it's true. And everybody means something. And we're all here, and there's nothing that we can do to change it. It's not worth it. But we're here, and we got a mission to do, and we're gonna keep doing it. I'm gonna take it to them, I'm gonna take the fight to them, and I'm gonna try to eradicate every one of these people that I can off the face of the earth. Because they've taken people of mine away from me. And uh, I'll see that justice is done for them, for nobody else but ourselves. I just hope that uh, everybody's prepared for it because it's it's ugly out there.
0: There's footage in the documentary of you talking to your troops about it. They, they all look pretty shaken up as you're saying this stuff to them. Did some of them come and talk to you about it uh, l- later?
9: Yeah. I had a lot of people come to me and say, look, you know, what do I do? I'm I'm terrified. I don't want to go outside here. You know, I'm consumed with fear. I had one a young man come to me and tell me that he had lost all his faith, that he was a, a, a saved his father was a pastor and he had been a Christian all his life. He said, I've lost my salvation. I, I can't I can't deal with this. And so there was a lot of time spent talking to people, reassuring them, you know, praying with them, praying for them. Yeah, what do you say to somebody when they tell you something like that? What what can help them? Well the main thing that I had to do, and it was something that I had to reach deep down inside, was to show them that regardless of what happens, I was going to be there. You know, we're going to go out there, we're going to do this together. I was going to be there.
0: What happens next is that the guys turn it around. They totally step up to the jobs they were sent to do. They work well together, they look out for each other. Matt turns out to be one of the best gunners in the group. In 10 months, no other guardsmen from Clarksville have died. And people don't complain. There's barely any complaining anymore. Unless something very unusual happens. Here's Craig uh, and then Brent Renault. As as the deployment goes along and as the film follows
5: this deployment, they find out, just like the rest of the country did, things about you know, 9-11 and the investi- investigations that they were doing. There was actually a day when I was with them in Iraq where the Stars and Stripes, um, which is the military newspaper that comes out, the front page was about the 9-11 um, panel commission and the hearings, and you know there not being a link between... Iraq and and 911 and and they were shocked when they when they read that.
0: And 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 what would they say like, like you know they're patriotic guys so you know they're doing their duty and all of that and, and you know want to support the president but like what like what's that do to them to see that?
4: They uh, since then I think maybe they wish they had toned it down a little bit but at that particular time um they said we were angry we were fooled and we 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 feel uh betrayed and and we're over here risking our lives, and and it's not what we thought it was, and that people were dying for something that they, you know, weren't sure if it was going to accomplish anything.
0: Throughout this whole documentary, the Arkansas Guardsmen show this mix of doubts about their mission and a willingness to suspend those doubts and follow orders. When I asked Matt if he's hopeful about the way things will work out in Iraq, he says, sure, they're definitely trying to help people there. Even Joe, who thinks there was no reason to go to war in the first place, is convinced that God must have some plan, some good reason of his own for putting Americans in Iraq. Here's what Sergeant Short thinks.
9: I don't want to say that it's a lost cause because I've lost good friends over here. And for me to say that would mean that they died for nothing. But it's, it's very disheartening uh, to me because I work with the Iraqi National Guard. I've worked with the, the new Iraqi army. I've worked with the Iraqi police force. And you've got the three security forces for this country that are in no way on the same sheet of music. They do not like each other. They do not trust each other. And they're, they're just not, their heart's not in it. And, you know, a lot of times it, it's just very frustrating because they, they just don't seem to care one way or another. Filmmaker Brent Renau.
4: I was out with on patrol the other day and one of the Iraqi translators, um, as we were going up and down the road, um, we were talking to... Uh, the local people and asking them who was putting these roadside bombs out into the road and the local said it's the americans putting them out there because they're trying to destabilize our country as we went along the road person after person was saying this same thing um, which is very upsetting to the soldiers because um, people in their unit had been killed by those roadside bombs
0: Betts, the minister, says that being in Iraq has made him question his faith many times. He talks openly in the film about how the deployment is ruining his life, causing trouble in his marriage. Before he left for Iraq, he had some problems with his neck, muscle spasms that were aggravated by all the weight that they're constantly carrying around in the military. Then a month into his deployment, he got this tingling and numbness in his arms and his fingers. It reached a point where he couldn't hold up his gun. and doctor said that a disc in his spine was out of place.
2: They looked at me, did x-rays, said, hey, we need to get you out of here. Sent me a lung stool in Germany. They looked at me and said, you're on your way home, But
0: Is there a downside to coming home?
2: The downside to me is coming home is I'm not in Iraq with my guys. That's my downside.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the downside, again, is that I have to hear all the bullcrap crap from people that don't understand what I'm going through.
0: Like, like, what are you talking
2: about? I mean, there's... <sighs> if you if you didn't get hit with a shrapnel, you shouldn't be at home. You understand?
0: People say this to you?
2: Yeah. I mean, if you, your arm isn't broke, you didn't get shot, so why are you at home?
0: As it's shown in the film, he's actually quite hurt, in physical pain. Doctors locate the problems in MRIs and in x-rays. But in Iraq... Joe had been so vocal about how he didn't want to be there. He was more vocal than anybody we see. Some guys now think that he was just trying to get home early. Here's Matt Hurtline.
6: A lot of people believe that uh, that he faked the injury to uh, to go home because uh, he was having problems with his uh, with his wife.
0: Hey, and what do you think?
6: I I don't know. I mean, I am not. Uh,
0: I don't know for sure. Did you, did you Did you see him when you were home? Uh no, no.
2: It bothered me in the beginning that they looked at me as if I was a deserter. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy. Basically, I don't, I don't, I try not to go anywhere that much because I don't really like dealing with with public, mm-hmm. uh, and basically that's all they want to talk about, and so I just, uh I can't. I try not to, but I can't keep from it because I got two girls that plays basketball, and so mm-hmm. I'm 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 out there all the time. So
0: i oh, at their games. Right. Wow.
2: So, and
0: so you're at their games in this small town. So these people who you'd rather not be having to deal with, you have to deal with.
2: Right. Exactly.
0: And the guys uh, in your unit, what kind of attitude are you getting from them?
2: At first, I was getting negative attitudes from them, uh, very negative because they would come home on leave and no one would call me. They wouldn't call to say hi or anything. To me that bothered me. I didn't I didn't understand that. And uh then I had even my platoon sergeant uh he came home, didn't call me. Uh I called a few of them that I knew was in. They didn't return my call. Hmm. Uh it was frustrating for me. I didn't understand it. I thought that they were just faulting me for being home. And uh, actually I found out some of them really was.
0: When people sign up for the regular Army or the Air Force or the Navy, they and their families know that it's going to take over their lives. They're going to move from base to base. They might go to war and have to deal with that. The National Guard is different. And much of this documentary series ends up being about people, complete families, who never expected to go to war, and what war does to them. Matt's mother cries on the phone with him. He grows up amazingly fast. Sergeant Short ends up proud of the work he does in Iraq, keeping his men safe. And for Joe, who was re-enlisted against his will, after all, it's hurt his marriage, given him permanent injury, and he lost his church. When he was away, attendance dropped to seven people, and then nobody was coming to services anymore. Until his unit's deployment is finished, and the rest of them come back from Iraq, his job every day is to go to the National Guard Armory, where he and two other injured guys do some paperwork when there's paperwork to do. They sit by the phone. They answer it when it rings. He reads the paper. He started reading some technical manuals to pass the time. The phone doesn't ring much.
3: What will you do when the war is over, tender comrade? When we lay down our weary guns, when we return home to our wives and families, And look into the eyes of our sons What will you say of the bond we had Tender comrade When we cast off these khaki clothes And go our separate ways What will you say of the bond we had? Tender comrade.
0: Coming up, the Battle of Fallujah. At the end of it, Marines wondered if this was one for the history books, if this was one that they would teach someday. When you hear one lieutenant describe what his men did, you will understand why. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. Thank uh-huh. you. American Life I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, we try to begin to answer a very simple question. What's it really like for American soldiers in Iraq? We've arrived at Act Two of our show Act Two, Marine Life in this Act. The most basic story that we rarely hear about war. What it's really like to fight on the ground, house to house. Rob Miller is a first lieutenant in the Marine Corps, commanding a weapons platoon of about forty guys in Charlie Company. He's thirty years old. He loves the Marines, he's been a Marine for a decade. In early November, Rob led his men in the Battle of Fallujah. After it was over, he talked with his uncle, Jack Hitt, by satellite phone from a camp east of the city. Uh, A quick word of explanation about some of the terms that Rob uses. Devil dogs and devils are Marines. Psyops are psychological operations. IED, of course, is improvised explosive device, the booby trap bombs that have caused the most casualties in Iraq. Good morning, Fallujah.
7: Hello, Jack Hitt. How are you doing? How are you? I'm doing pretty good I'm trying to light a cigarette I guess right when I went on emergency leave I ended up smoking again and then Fallujah's like you know it doesn't deny you of your nicotine habits It's just like a mandatory so people who don't smoke now smoke people that used to dip now dip and smoke <laughs> I tell you I was like absolutely like out of cigarettes and like we had marines that were coming up with like these little Iraqi cigarettes because we were like paying the interpreters to get cigarettes for all the Marines. Yeah. And uh lo and behold my old buddy freaking sent me a package and in it was, you know, like six six packs of cigarettes and all he wrote was I started smoking in Fallujah when I went. Here's here's some smokes for you. <laughs> like, oh my God Uh
10: so what what's what's been happening today?
7: Today's pretty laid back. Oh my guys are uh out in the old firm base and we're still hardening the firm base it's uh it's pretty funny we go to these places and we harden these firm bases and you feel like you know i don't know 10 15, sandbags you lay you know 200 rolls of Constantina wire you put out trip flares you know you know build earth and berms and with charlie company specifically we do that for like seven to ten days and then they say hey you're moving Oh God! you're like oh you're kidding me so then you turn it over to somebody else and they're like hey nice firm base you're welcome.
10: Bastard. <laughs> so you were doing this like house to house clearing stuff that we're this is what we're seeing on our TVs here.
7: Oh yeah. It's pretty crazy. I mean, you know, we push from the north part of the city through the breach on foot all the way to, you know, the center of the city. Anywhere you went, you know, you'd look out a window and a sniper would try to shoot you. I mean, every time you move, you don't just like walk across. You don't you don't walk anywhere. Everywhere you go, you're moving to get behind cover. Even if it's a you know telephone pole, telephone pole. If that's all you got, that's that's good cover. If that's all you got, right. I, I saw tons of Marines hiding behind you know, you know, the uh, gutters in the roads, shooting from underneath gutters. You know. Right. four inches of cover that's, that's nothing but if all you got is four inches four inches is beautiful so I mean the whole the whole first night we went basically like two blocks the whole first night
10: can you describe sort of what was it like what did you do
7: well uh you know they had the first day of the initial bombings and uh it was actually really good we sat all day and we watched the city just being bombarded they were hitting you know targets they were hitting you know, peep fortifications and people were moving around. They were hitting them. J-Dams, laser guided bombs. And so we sat all day through this, like, you know, symphony of destruction. Wow. And, uh, and, and it just played out until it got dark. And then when it got dark, it's like, alright, now that it's dark, it's time for the grunts to go in. hmm But, uh, yeah, the first night we went in, going through the breach, this was pretty weird. We had SAS behind us, and they're blaring music into the city. I mean, it's just huge speakers. You're screaming music into the city. What music? I don't know what the... Oh, I guess... Uh, I, I, don't know, I don't remember what the tune was from uh, Full Metal Jacket. At the very end of uh, Full Metal Jacket, they're, like, walking through Saigon, I think it is, or it's one of the, the big battles at the end of the movie, and, and they're on patrol, and there's, like, this funky 70s music going.
9: And that's what they were
7: blaring. Like, as I crossed the breach, and all I could think of was Full Metal Jacket, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, you're playing that while I'm crossing this breach? That's not what I want to hear. So,
10: Yeah, what music would you have chosen?
7: Uh, let the bodies hit the Floor. That's a good one. Really, like, fast-paced, you know. But, yeah, they were just playing crazy stuff. I mean, they got some kind of method. I don't know how it works. It was definitely, you know, annoying me. I can't imagine what it was doing to, to the bad guys. Yeah, we were we were pushing through the city. I mean, even on certain days, you push through the city, and as you progress further, I mean, the mosques would be screaming for, you know, people to rise up. Right. And uh, there was one, it was like the middle of the night, and we were pushing through these alleys to push forward. And uh, I just remember this mosque was just, the guy on the speaker was just screaming. He was just like... I mean, yelling in Arabic, ah, la, la, la. And he's like, I love jihad, I ah, love jihad, 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 I love jihad. And I was like, God, will somebody shoot those speakers? Ten minutes later, there was just like this massive gunfire, and all the speakers went silent because they shot all the speakers. Wow. Like like the fourth day into the fight, we went from the, uh, I went, I was at the Al-Hydra Mosque with my mortars. Right. And uh, we got the word we were pushing to the mayor's complex, which is right in the center of the city. And uh, we pushed to the mayor's complex and tracks. And we were maybe, you know, less than 100 meters between the where the the tracks dropped us off and the building we had to go to. And, uh, I mean, our foot movement from there, it was basically a sprint. Our sprint from the track all the way to the building and we had snipers just, like, trying to peg us, I mean, just the whole way, just rounds zinging by, hitting the dirt. And uh, we got into this building, and that's when we found out that, I mean, the entire mayor's complex was, like, surrounded by snipers. And they were just just pinging at anybody that could freaking walk in the open. So, right. You know, we were, our mortar ammo, we, we initially took all our extra mortar ammunition, and each mortar can probably weighs, I don't know, a little thirty or forty pounds, you know. We have our Marines divvy up, and they're carrying mortar rounds in their pack, and then we have an extra, probably eight, ten cans that we're taking into combat. So we tie these things onto these huge D9 tractors. And we cinch them down, and everything was good until we go through the breach, and one of the D9s gets stuck in this huge, like, mud bog. Just oh. sinks. Oh it's God. So heavy. And so we got to send people back into the breach to get our ammo. But the problem was, when they pulled it off the first D9, they, they cut the straps instead of, you know, untying it. However they got it off, they cut it off and they brought it. We can't reattach it, so we had to use a casualty stretcher. So we use this casualty stretcher, we keep all of our ammo on it. So when we move, you know, I got two Marines, like, lugging 200 pounds of ammo. You're not moving fast, you know. Yeah. Just, you know you can't. A sprint is definitely. I mean, you move across the road in a dead sprint carrying 200 pounds of ammo. You know, the two of you. I mean, it's a shuffle. It's a shuffle. <laughs> yeah. It's just shuffling across the road, like don't get shot, don't get shot, don't get oh, shot. Oh
10: man. By the way, I mean, was any were you were you ever scared?
7: Uh Well, I mean, I mean, to a certain degree, yeah. You're kind of you know, you're definitely freaked out at certain times. I mean, there was a... The first night we were moving forward, and it's, it's probably the only time I was ever scared for my company and my battalion. Uh, we were pushing forward. It's, it's pitch black. I mean, there's no moon, and it's raining, and it's drizzling, and it's like, you know, 40 degrees out, and everybody's freezing, and, and uh, my unit's pushing forward, and uh, it's just, you know, contact the whole way. And... Uh, all of a sudden we get the call of the radio, We got a we got a Marine down, we got a Marine down. We got, you know, IEDs in this alley and IED just went off. So two Marines, you know, they went in to get this guy, boom, freaking these two other guys go down. So now they got three guys in an alley that they think is the whole alley is like IED. And that was the big fears that there were just gonna be IEDs all across the city. I was like, Oh my god. Right. I mean we're gonna take so many casualties, it's gonna take forever for us to move. You know, can we do it? Sure. But it's going to be, like, absolutely horrible. Uh, at the same time, 3rd platoon had, like, massive contact further down to the east. Uh, 1st platoon was actually held up because they were in a massive engagement to our flank in the far east. Uh, Bravo Company was just shooting all across their line. And I was like, how can they, I mean, they, they wanted us to push all the way to the Hydra Mosque, like, that night. Mm-hmm. And I was like, How can they expect us to push to the Hydra Like I do- it's totally not feasible. You know, we got these three guys, three Marines that are down and they are wounded and uh it was like two, three minutes later that the platoon commander came back on. He's like he's like, It wasn't IEDs. it wasn't IDs. There's freaking there's a there's a guy in a like a second story and he's freaking throwing hand grenades oh, in this man. alley. And so they just like light this guy up with everything they own. I mean they're like, you know, throw in the kitchen sink up at this guy. Mm-hmm. They finally kill this guy. And in the same time our tanks that were attached to us, uh, Panzer, these guys call us and he's he's actually on the road facing east and he's like you can hear he when he calls you can hear his his two forty golf like shooting and his fifty cal shooting. And he's just like, Oh my God He's like, You need to get somebody else down here He's like there's you know, 50 to 60 people, like, retreating from the north to south.
5: Mm-hmm. And they're
7: just, like, flowing across the road. He's like, I can't, I can't kill them all. And he must have killed, like, 30, 35 people. And he didn't, he couldn't even get it. He couldn't get, I mean, I don't even know if he made a dent. They were just flowing to the south, away from us. Wow.
10: This this is your second time in, in Iraq, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and the first time, I mean, you didn't see combat anything like this, right?
7: No, 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 I mean, we, it was pretty cool, I mean, my platoon was the first Marine unit, like, on the deck in Mosul, and so we got there expecting to get off, and like, I mean, get off and get into a firefight, but it wasn't like that, and, uh, it really, I mean, you know, not like, it wasn't anything like Fallujah, I mean, It wasn't even, it wasn't really out of control. As soon as we got there, CNN showed up. And they were like, you know, the Marines are on the deck in Massoul. And then everything quieted down. Like everybody's like, oh, US forces are here, good to go. Everything's good. Go home, relax, you know. And we did a lot, I did a lot of, you know, missions where I would go and just stand on the road and like, wavy cars and i mean i really felt like i was trying to collect money you know <laughs> money for the poor you know what i'm out there with a gun and i'm like you know
10: you know. now that you've seen combat i mean do you would you want to go into it again or do you feel like you're cured
7: yeah i you know it's, it's a good question some people definitely are you know they're like that's it we're done uh you know but i don't know it, it's a it's a tough thing. I mean, it's yeah. really tough. You know, you. Well, no, well, now that you say that, now yeah. now that I've been in like you know pretty intense combat, you would say, you know, I'm like, that's ah, good to go. We need to like move dragon, as we would say, you know, we're good. We need to get our job done and get home. Yeah. You know.
10: Right. Did you ever get the the boxes we sent you of food?
7: I got them. Yeah, the auto cards. Yeah. 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 That was great.
10: Well, it's mostly mostly junk food.
7: <laughs> oh my god. Those art show cards? I was laughing. I was laughing to tears and our forward observer came in, this lieutenant he's like, No way. I love art show cards. I was like, Well you are you are in luck, devil I was because like, I got a whole jar of art show card's got your name on it. He's like, Oh yeah But well, we get a lot of good stuff. We get tons of stuff from like uh, kids in schools and we get a lot of like like crayon drawings that are, you know, the Marine is like this this huge person and the Iraqis is little small people and, you know, we're throwing hand grenades and they're like, run away. (laughs) We get some though, especially when you get into middle school and high school, then you get like the political kids. And the funniest one that comes to my mind was some some youth group out of uh, like New York or something, they sent us a bunch of stuff. A couple of them were like, You know, I think President Bush is crazy, and you gotta be kidding me, what are we doing over there? <laughs> <Stay safe. laughs>
10: so listen, um I have a joke for you, yeah, uh I love blackhawks, but you know who hates them? Iraqi sheep farmers,
7: Iraqi sheep farmers, yeah, Iraqi sheep farmers hate yeah. blackhawks. I don't get
10: it. Okay, so also on this program is this comic who's been touring in Fallujah. His name is Tom Irwin.
7: Oh, yeah, no, he was out here, and all the posts got to watch him because everybody else was in the field. That was pretty funny.
10: Oh, you didn't see him?
7: No! We were, like, in Fallujah. <laughs> right. You know, I don't know. It, it burns up all the all my boys. They always get ticked off and that kind of stuff. They're like, you know, why are they doing a show for them? They're not getting shot at. <laughs>
10: Wow. Well, we can't wait to see you here, back home.
7: Well, I can't wait to get back, see my little boy.
10: Yeah. All right, man. Well, listen. Thanks again for all this. to you. All this time. Yeah. Be be safe, as we say. That's 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 all we can say from back here. But. Uh, yeah. Um. But anyway, we can't wait to see you.
7: Sounds good.
10: All
0: right, man.
7: Gotta talk to you later. Give everybody my love.
0: Okay. I will. All right, Rob. Hi. Right. Till then. Bye, bye. Marine Lieutenant Rob Miller outside Fallujah, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, talking with his uncle Jack Hitt, one of our regular contributors here in This American Life. Let the bodies hit the floor,
1: let the bodies hit the floor, let the bodies hit the floor, let the bodies hit the floor. Let the
0: Well, our program is produced today by Wendy Dorrit and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Jane Feltis, Amy O'Leary, Sarah Koenig, and Lisa Pollack. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. For more information about that TV documentary about the National Guardsmen, it's called Off to War. Type that into any search engine and you'll find their website or go to dctvny.org. Special thanks today to Tom Irwin, who's doing a one-man show about his comedy tour of Iraq in Los Angeles and sometime soon in New York. Thanks also to Eddie Stein and John Alpert of DCTV, to the Renault Brothers, Diana Sparaza, Chris Durney, Bob Carlson, Brittany Hopkins, Eric Rudd, and Jen Banberry. Today's program and its archives are available for download at audible.com slash thisamericanlife, where you can download other public radio programs and best-selling audiobooks such as Jon Stewart's America and David Sedaris' Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. That's audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Volkswagen of America and the Phaeton. Filled with the kinds of crazy technology you'd expect to find at a science museum, massage seats, air conditioning without vents, at vw.com. WBEZ management oversight from Mr. Tori Malatia, who has this message for his followers.
7: I love jihad. I love jihad. Jihad, jihad, jihad. I love jihad.
0: I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of the Samaritan Life. P R I the body the,
7: the, body the, the body... Public Radio International.